0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode two of The Casual Criminalist. My name is Simon, your host here on the channel. What happens is we have a very dark criminal story. Obviously, it's The Casual Criminalist. That's exactly what you expected. This one has been put together by our fantastic writer, Callum. I'm going to take you through it. I'm going to add some commentary if I feel like it. And generally, well, this one's really grim. It's, It's all about Dr. Harold Shipman, who... There's a lot of talk about, you know, serial killers, and when we think of serial killers, who comes to mind, you know, Ted Bundy, Ed Gein, John Wayne Gacy, these kind of guys who are, like, our forefront in our mind of serial killing. There was a recent report, and update on Harold Shipman, and Callum, I guess, will get into it later, you know, as we go through the script today, about just how many people he killed, and I don't think there's really any spoilers here, because this is the casual criminalist, people died, um, people killed. He killed more people than possibly any other serial killer. So that's Dr. Harold Shipman. I remember this story coming out early 2000s, late 90s. I guess we'll find out. And it was, I don't think I quite appreciated at the time the scope of this guy's crimes. And maybe the justice system didn't either. So let's jump in. Let's get on with our story. I'm going to have a sip of coffee. Outside of your family and close friends, who do you trust the most? Take a second and think. Maybe it's your kid's favorite school teacher. Maybe the nice old lady who lives next door. Maybe it's your local police. Although that last one really depends on where you live indeed. I'm recording this in 2020 and I'm obviously British. I I tend to think, you know, our police, they don't have guns generally. uh, Like, they're people who who are to ask for directions on the street. That's kind of been... Other than when I once accidentally bought something that was stolen... Uh, that's kind of my limits of interaction with the police. Oh, my my uncle's a detective or was a detective before he retired. So that's about it. Um, But obviously, this is 2020. If you're in America, you probably have a really different opinion of the police because that's pretty intense. Um, I'll bet, uh, let's continue. I'll bet that a fair few of you thought of your local doctor instead. Picture him now. Late middle age, thinning grey hair, warm fatherly smile, thick-rimmed glasses tilted slightly to the side, and an unwavering air of comfort- comforting competence hanging around him. And to top it all off, this person has dedicated their entire life to the very specific task of making sure you don't die. <laughs> See, unless you're Harold Shipman, in which case, well, you know, we're going to find out what. Surely this person that surely with this person there's no safer hands to be in. Well actually, as it turns out, the friendly face you're picturing right now could actually be that of a cold-blooded killer. Not just any old killer. This was one of the most gruesomely prolific killers to ever operate in the UK. Indeed, Callum just is I think, to operate anywhere in the world. Whose decades long killing spree claimed the arrivals of a veritable pile of victims in what must be one of the most flagrant violations of the Hippocratic Oath in history. His legacy of unassuming terror sh- sent shockwaves through the entirety of British society and caused an overhaul in the health system aimed at making sure that nothing like this could ever happen again. National Health Service workers of a particular generation will shiver when they hear the name Harold Shipman. So what was Mr. Shipman doing? Was he killing people for medical researchers a Burke and Hare, who were two Scottish people I believe, who were killing people and then selling the bodies to medical researchers because getting bodies for autopsies and stuff like that was very difficult back in the day? I think I've done a video about this on my Today I Found Out your YouTube channel. Um, if you'd like me to cover it on Casual Criminalists though, and you know, a more laid-back style like this, a bit more longer in depth, let me know and it shall be done stalking the streets with his knife uh, at night with a scalpel creating his own frankenstein's monsters in the clinic supply closet well as it turns out the reality was actually far more insidious than any of that to get to the bottom of it all, let's rewind to the mid-1990s. acid wash jeans were all the rage. The Backstreet Boys battered it out with the Spice Girls for the top spots in the charts. I'm glad music moved on from that. And uh, a certain Dr. Shipman was plying his noble trade down in the hu- in the town of Hyde, near Manchester. I don't know Hyde. But I certainly have heard of Manchester, that's a very large city. After a decade of working in the Donnybrook Medical Center, he had gathered the funds to start his own clinic on Market Street in 1992, cementing his position as a familiar, friendly face around town. Known as Fred to his friends, wait, wasn't his name Harold? He was the picture of professionalism, a real family man with four children to his wife Primrose. Twenty and all observers. Fred seemed like a decent guy, someone you'd say hello to down the pub, someone you'd happily take your kids to for treatment, the one who sat by your grandmother's bedside during her final moments. He even had the beard and build to make a pretty convincing shopping centre Santa Claus if he ever fancied the gig. Hello, yeah, the doctor's side gig Santa at the mall. <laughs> Everything seemed fine in the leafy town of Hyde until March of 1998, when a local undertaker noticed a worrying trend. Deborah Massey had spent her whole working life around death, so she knew a thing or two about it. And as she went about her morbid business, she realized that a certain name kept popping up over and over again on the death certificates of her dearly departed clients, particularly the elderly women. After presumably spending hours deciphering the incomprehensible scroll that is doctors' handwriting, she discovered the name belonged to our plucky hero, Dr. Shipman even in jest i don't think we should call him a hero callum (laughs) yes it seemed to her that old harold had a higher kill count than your average call of duty player almost all down to natural causes which meant one of three things either he was the unluckiest doctor in all of manchester he wasn't he was just some incompetent guy who nicked a lab coat and made a medical degree on photoshop he wasn't (laughs) or something much more sinister was going on That's the one. The number of deaths wasn't the only red flag either. Shipman's patients also had an unusually high rate of cremation. That's never good. (laughs) What happened to the body? Ah, it it was cremated really quickly afterwards because the body was filled with poison. (laughs) Never a good sign. On top of that, most of the newly deads were found in the exact same position. At home, sat in a slightly reclined position on the sofa, fully clothed. So we have a local doctor with a power over life and death in his hands who seems biased in the favor of the latter and who recommends incineration as the best method of burial to his elderly patients' families that's enough red flags to carpet a mansion though <laughs> why you'd be carpeting a mansion with flags well, I guess you just have a weird house, Callum. Needless to say, Massey didn't just give Shipman the benefit of the doubt. She spoke to her father, who confronted the doctor directly about the stats. But he reassured them that there was nothing to be worried about. Old ladies, die. It's just a fact of life. Yeah, but so many die with you, Harold. (laughs) Fred whatever your name is, he couldn't save everyone. There must at least have been a part of them that just wanted to accept this excuse and move on. Surely this round-faced little local man couldn't have intentionally killed anyone? Surely not. Nonetheless, Massey brought her worries to another GP right across the street from Shipman's Clinic, who already had some suspicions of their own on account of all the cremation forms that they were being asked to countersign. After double-checking the stats, which revealed a ten times higher death rate than average, the GP contacted the district coroner. And now the noose was tightening. If Harold really was the killer, which some suspected he might be, then surely this was the end of his grisly career. The long arm of the law had finally caught up with him, and justice was well and truly… <laughs> oh wait, no. That's what Callum writes here. And it is like, yeah, I mean, there's a good ten pages here left to go. So, And also, you know, spoilers from the beginning. We know he killed a lot, of, a lot more people. So um, yeah, let's crack on. No, actually, the subsequent investigation turned up no evidence of wrongdoing. Apparently, the rookie police sent to investigate the matter were perfectly happy to buy the plain bad luck excuse and close the case in the middle of April, less than a month after it began. They hadn't dug into Shipman's patchy past at all, but to be fair, the records of all his deceased patients did seem to set a reasonable precedent for the ways in which they died. Patients diagnosed as having heart conditions would pass away from heart attacks. Those who had a history of liver cirrhosis would succ- Come to liver failure. The files all seemed pretty clear cut. Yeah, but he's also making the files. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, the woman with a heart heart disease died of a heart attack. Uh, the only evidence of that is the fact that he wrote a heart attack on her death certificate or whatever, and then very quickly had the body destroyed. So Harold returned to work just as before, and the old dears of the town entrusted their lives to him as they had decades. The reporter who first broke the story of Dr. Death, Michaela Sitford of the Manchester Evening News, later visited him at his clinic. In 2020, she recounted, "...When I approached Shipman, still working at his surgery, and asked him to reassure his patients he was innocent of any wrongdoing, he declined in a thin, reedy voice, his beady, pale eyes staring at me through his glasses. As I left, an old lady in the waiting room tutted at me for daring to question him. That's right, like a cow rolling its eyes at the vegans picketing the abattoir, the old woman in the waiting room got annoyed at Sitford for harassing poor Harold with no regard for the danger she might have been in. I guess it's easier to believe that some faceless bureaucrats in the NHS made a mistake rather than face the fact that your much-loved family doctor might have killed some of your best friends. Yeah, this trust that people have, like once you've built up that trust over a while, I mean... It's going to be really hard to tell people otherwise. It was this, the steadfast trust of the Hyde community, indeed, built up over years and years of… Callum and I, same page. Years and years of loyal service, which allowed Shipman to kill a further three more victims in the following months. Oh, I'm sorry. Was that a spoiler? <laughs> Were you waiting for the big twist where it pour- turns out, poor Harold? was actually framed by a nefarious coroner or the victim of some conspiracy by rival clinics. No, no, he was absolutely guilty. Incredibly guilty. But trust me, the real shocks are still to come. Yeah, again, apologize for the spoilers right at the beginning of the show. But no, Harold Shipman was, he killed many people. If you listen to this, you've probably heard of Harold Shipman. You're like, I know he did something bad. It wasn't that he wasn't stitched up by a coroner. Before we get to those, though, let's go back to the very beginning. How exactly does someone with such a fascination for death get into a profession which is all about preserving life? Well, the answer might well lie in Harold's formative years. The story of how he came to be the man he is was a recipe lifted straight from the serial killer cookbook. Narcissistic delusions of grandeur, trauma, and mother issues. Yeah, I... Ted, what were the guys we mentioned earlier? Ted Bundy, Ed Gein, John Wayne Gacy. Yeah, you can see where serial killers come from. Uh, Baby Harold was born on the 14th of January 1946, the middle of three children in a working-class family in Nottingham, in England. His father drove lorries, meaning that for the most part, the Shipman kids were under the sole care of their mother Vera. By all accounts, she was controlling and hard to please, and gave her eldest and youngest a stressful childhood. Harold, however was let off easy. His mother made no secret of the fact that he was the favorite child, and she had high hopes for his future. Being told every day how much better he was than his siblings and schoolmates gave the boy a severe superiority complex, which made it difficult for him to make friends. remember that one kid at school who thought he was destined for Mensa just because he aced a basic algebra exam? That was Harold Shipman. Yeah, those people are incredibly annoying. I mean, annoy. Hopefully, most of them didn't go on to become serial killers, but Harold Shipman obviously did. The attitude stuck with Harold throughout his life. One of his colleagues from his time in Hyde, Dr. Jeffrey Moisey, once told reporters he had very high opinions and very strong opinions, and he felt the way in which he practiced medicine was the standard to which all his colleagues should aspire. Yes, can you really even call yourself a doctor if you don't have a double-figure kill-to-death ratio? Indeed. His mother's soft spot for Harold meant that when she was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, it was he who took much of the burden of her day-to-day care, even though he was just a teenager at the time. Despite the adult he became, you have to feel kind of sorry for the kid that he was. By just turning 17 years old, he was watching the final days of his mother's life unfold right before his eyes. Yeah, I mean, anyone can have sympathy for that. That has got to be pretty brutal. Um, But don't become a serial killer because of it, Harold. Come on! And what most fascinated him about it all were the drugs, the morphine which their family doctor would administer to his mother to ease her pain. With one little vial of liquid, she she was relieved of all her suffering. It was this which inspired Shipman to study medicine, which he went on to do at Leeds University after his mother's passing. At the very beginning of his studies, when he was 19, Harold had another coming-of-age experience. He got someone pregnant. The girl was 17-year-old Primrose, who he married in a small ceremony at the registry office when she was four months due, at the demand of her super-religious parents. That sort of thing was common in the 1960s in England. When a child was born out of wedlock, it was a big taboo. Fast forward 10 years. And the couple had another child together, and were living together in the small town of Todmorden, West Yorkshire. It was this quaint little pastoral town of just 15,000 people where things started to unravel for Shipman. His colleagues in the local medical centre noticed some strange discrepancies in his files. Most notably, they were wondering why the hell this guy prescribed so much morphine. From the amounts he had dished out over the first half of 1975, it seemed like this was his go-to cure-all for any and all ailments, which you might recognise as a tip from Train Spotting rather than a medical textbook yeah um morphine is not the cure can you just go into the doctor it's like yeah yeah i've got this mild cold and he's like some morphine will fix that right up it's like 1800s you want some cocaine drops It turned out that he had written up to 70 false prescriptions for the opiate drug pethidine to feed his own drug addiction. Pethidine is usually given to women during childbirth, but Shipman had spent the last six months injecting himself with around 700 milligrams in the arms and legs every single day to deal with a severe bout of depression. He claimed it was caused by his suggestions not being taken seriously enough by his peers at the clinic. Oh Harold, you snowflake. Get over it. You intellectually entitled idiot. Um, Which, for someone so used to intellectually dominating the room, must have really tortured his pride. Indeed. So much so that he had to take morphine to get over it. Oh my. In February of 1976, he was summoned to a court in Halifax where he admitted to eight counts of uh, obtaining drugs by deception. By way of excuse, he said that he had become fascinated by drugs during his time at university, which is a fair enough explanation for a little bag of weed in your bedroom drawer, but not so much for raiding the pharmacy of its stockpile of injectable opiates. Also, you're a doctor. You've, what, it's been 10 years since you started, so you've been practicing medicine for four years? People expect better of you, really. But amazingly, the punishment for doing so was pretty light. It was the 1970s, after all. He got a £600 fine, which is, well, going to be a few thousand pounds today. So, not small, but, uh,. You'd kind of think he might go to prison or lose his medical license, right? And also compensation to the NHS, uh, that's the health service in the UK, to cover all of the drugs he stole. After settling the bill, Shipman set off to drug rehab in the city of York, where he laid low for a while and attempted to kick that drug habit. This disgrace was the first major roadblock in the career of our frustrated, self-assumed genius, and it may well be what completed his transformation from garden variety narcissist to cold-blooded killer. It took less than 5 years for the heat to die down and Harold returned to practicing as a GP. Okay, so he took some time off. I say that 5 years is quite long. I mean, I guess people have got to forget about it and stuff, but you know, they didn't take away his medical license. So I guess you know he's just addicted to drugs. He's not exactly like he's killing anyone, right? <laughs> In 1979, the shipments relocated the community, which was to become his hunting ground for the next two decades, the sleepy town of Hyde, where our story began. Despite his record of criminality abusing his position, he landed a job at the Donnybrook Medical Center. And the rest is history. Dark, grisly, depressing history. At his tribunal for stealing drugs in 1975, the presiding magistrate, Dr. Morris Golden, said to Shipman, "...it is indeed a very sad case, that almost at the beginning of your career, you should find yourself in this position. And God, if only he knew the positions that the Pesadine-loving doc would find himself in in the years to come." So, now we're all caught up on the life and times of Britain's most heinous killer, we find ourselves back in the innocent days of 1998. Let's recap. We have a killer on the loose who was reported by his colleagues but had been cleared by the police. He's also maintained the good faith of much of the community and looks set to ride off into the late 90s sunset with Wonderwall blaring out of the stereo of his Ford Focus. (laughs) That is the most 90s reference ever. Uh, My dad drove a Ford Focus. I loved that album. Uh, What's the story Morning Glory from Oasis? Wonderwall. Wall. Mwah! Uh, but see, there's a funny thing about serial killers. They don't exactly have the best impulse control. Shipman was no exception. So instead of wiping the sweat off his brow after his close call with the law and calling time on his career as a murderer, he just kept on doing what he did best. On June the 24th, Kathleen Grundy, the former mayoress of Hyde, was found dead in her house at the age of 81. Her family were shocked at the speed of her passing, but they were assured by a trusty Shipman that he had just seen her that morning and that she hadn't been in the bed test of health. No need for an autopsy. Certainly not. Why would we want an autopsy? It might reveal something suspicious. Quick, burn her body! Uh, It was perfectly natural for people in their 80s to pass like this, and why put the family through any more stress and worry? Of course. The victim's daughter, Angela, took Shipman at his word, and a week later, hundreds of townsfolk attended the funeral at Hyde Chapel to say their farewells. Among them were Grundy's two grandchildren, who she had been gushing about to her friend just the night before her passing. They said their final tearful goodbyes, and Mrs. Grundy was taken away to be buried. From Shipman's perspective, it was another job well done. Well, you know, not his actual job. He'd obviously done a terrible job of that, but another flawless murder. The perfect crime, which the police seemingly couldn't figure out even if it was Stem them right in the face. The world continued on as normal, and Angela Woodruff set about setting her mother's affairs in order. But as she dug into the drawers of paperwork containing the insurance policies, bank books, and all the other dreadful admin that has to be done after a death, she made a strange discovery. Apparently, her mother and a good doctor had been closer than she realized, so close but he was now the sole beneficiary of Mrs. Grundy's £386,000 estate. This was outlined in a new will, which had only been completed recently. The document read: "All my estate, money, and home to my doctor. My family are not in need, and I want to reward him for all the care he has given me and the people of Hyde. He is sensible enough to handle any problems, and that this may give him. The doc- my doctor is Dr. H. F. Shipman, 21 Market Street, Hyde. Residue to my daughter. I wish my body to be cremated. If." this is so maximum level suspicious i mean take this to the police lady and i mean surely something's going to happen or maybe not in retrospect but surely just look at some handwriting from like her previous wills or something like that it's so sure to just like give all the money to the doctor burn me Oh, okay, so the grandkids were going to get nothing while some random doctor was getting every penny she owned. Sounds legit. After the initial shock, Woodruff took a closer look at the documents and found that, as you might have already noticed, it was written with about as much subtlety as an eight-year-old forging their own sick note for school. Sorry, Johnny can't come to school today. He's very, very sick. Signed, Johnny's Mum. Yeah, it it is very amateurish, isn't it? Now, while the childish levels of trickery might fool some naive souls, Woodruff was a lawyer. She dealt with this stuff every day of her life, and rarely did any authentic legal document look as slapdash as this. The typesetting was all uneven, the grammar was poor, and the signature of Mrs. Grundy didn't even match her usual one. Woodruff went to the police with the document, and further checks revealed Dr. Shipman's fingerprints in the bottom left corner, with none from the deceased anywhere to be found. Considering how many people he killed and how long he got away with it, how could he possibly be so sloppy? So while it was Al Capone's lax approach to taxes which eventually brought him down, Dr. Shipman's Achilles' heel was his ham-fisted word-processing skills. With a smoking gun in hand, now the real investigation could begin. It began, rather depressingly, with the, I thought Callum was going to write, but no, he continued murdering people. It seems that this is actually where he starts to get caught. Was it really? Through something so sloppy, Harold or Fred. It began rather depressingly with the exhumation of Mrs. Grundy's body. The town was torn apart by a fresh wave of anxiety as they waited with bated breath for the results of the autopsy. And sure enough, as Angela Woodruff had suspected, her mother hadn't passed away from natural causes. It was a massive overdose of morphine which had seen her off. Okay, so the note said. That she was to be cremated, so I guess her family didn't obey her wishes and had her buried, which obviously turns out pretty useful in this case. The coroners managed to narrow down the injection to around three hours before the time of death, which was precisely when Harold Shipman had been visiting. In Mrs. Grundy's diary, she had written that the doctor would be visiting her to take a blood sample for a Manchester University survey on aging. Oh, come on, Doc. <laughs> she wrote it in her diary. There's so many breadcrumbs. They're going to look up that study. It's probably not going to exist. Yeah, the study was totally fictitious, and instead, he administered her with a fatal dose of diamorphine. I think diamorphine is heroin. Like, that's the medical word for, for heroin, which I believe is a prescription drug in the UK and almost nowhere else. Might have made a video about that somewhere else. As it turns out, this was completely typical of his modus operandi. Shipman wasn't just some opportunist, he was a full fledged predator, a con man who whiled his way into the trust of his victims and engineered the perfect conditions to kill them without suspicion. But now all of this good faith uh, and benefit of the doubt had dried up, and on the morning of the 7th of September 1998, Shipman was asked to come down to the police station for questioning. While raiding his house, the police gathered boxes of medical records, a collection of jewellery pieces, which were likely taken as souvenirs from his victims. Don't take souvenirs, Harold. You're already looking psycho enough. I mean, you are a psycho. You killed so many people, but come on, come on. There's so many breadcrumbs, how did it take so long for you to get caught? And even a battered old typewriter with a broken key, which was an exact match for the documents forged in the name of Mrs. Grundy. Harold, you amateur. How did you kill so many people and get away with it for so long? Good lord. With Shipman in custody, the police set to work on raking through the files found at his home and clinic. Given the prior investigation, they had reason to believe that Mrs. Grundy might not be the only victim. And how right they were. All in all, they identified a further 11 cases in which the deceased could be exhumed for examination. Over the following months, the graveyards of Hyde were restless, as investigators worked through the nights to open the graves of Shipman's patients and deliver the bodies back to the morgue. That's got to be super unpleasant. I mean, those bodies are going to be pretty ripe. Of course, high levels of morphine toxicity were discovered in all of them, despite the causes of death being listed as natural. Now with 12 separate murder charges hanging over him, the good doctor went head-to-head head with investigators as best he could despite basically having the word guilty written across his forehead predictably his excuses were about as convincing as the signatures he forged on the fake will for the most part he just struck to one word answers despite some pretty intense grilling but when probed about the typewriter in his home matching the documents he said that Mrs. Grundy had borrowed it from his home several times he just couldn't remember when dude this is so weak Get a lawyer. Do you not have a lawyer? Can you not come up with something better? Detective Chief Inspector Mike Williams of the Greater Manchester Police later told the BBC. My assessment of him was that he was treating this as some sort of game or competition, pitching his, what he considered to be, superior intellect against those of the officers who were interviewing him. Oh, Harold, I hope they… I mean, I know they crushed you and you end up in prison forever, but uh, yeah, no, this makes you very unlikable, Harold, and all the murdering as well. Well done, Harold, the old, she-borrowed-my-typewriter defense. Checkmate. Surely no detective, judge, or jury was going to be such a match for for your masterful deception. His most audacious gambit was trying to retroactively paint one of his victims as a drug addict herself. He can be heard on the investigation tape saying, I had my suspicions she was actually abusing a narcotic of some sort. She did have drugs available. She may well have given herself accidentally an overdose. What? all of them Harold, all twelve, that they dug up. Good luck with that one, mate. As if it weren't enough that he had taken away someone's mother, someone's grandmother, someone's wife, he was now even willing to put them through the heartache of those baseless accusations if there was any chance they might see him walk free to kill again. But in reality, Dr. Shipman wasn't quite the evil genius he envisioned himself, obviously not. (laughs) I mean, the typewriter, the forged letter, the souvenirs… like, let's cremate them really quickly, quick, quick, burn the body. It's, you're not, you're not an evil genius, Dr. Shipman. Not at all. Uh, He failed to provide any convincing alibi or explanation for the pile of bodies by his side. By the time the trial came around, the police had gathered a total of 15 counts of murder to send him down on all of the victim's women, all of them elderly. Those 15 murder charges, with an additional one for forgery, were brought before Preston Crown Court on on October the 5th, 1999. The media went into a frenzy over the case of Doctor Death, uh, which I believe is the kind of nickname that he was given, rather appropriately, and the entire nation was in a state of total shock at seeing the mask of a small-town doctor ripped off to reveal a cold-blooded killer. During the trial, Shipman's murderous methodology was laid bare by the prosecution. We already know that he used his trusted position as cover. He would visit his patients at home, either at their request or under some false pretenses, then inject them with enough morphine to sedate a racehorse. It's chilling to imagine his elderly victims welcoming Shipman into their homes with a smile and brewing him a cup of tea as he prepared the needle, which would end their life. Yeah, I can imagine this. I mean, I've got elderly relatives, and it's like, that's really depressing. His penchant for targeting the elderly was no coincidence either. And it wasn't just because he really loved a good cup of tea before a kill. Shipman knew that nobody would ask questions if some old octogenarians passed away quietly in their homes and nobody would demand an autopsy. To make sure of it, he even went back into the patient's medical records and added fake conditions to the notes to back up his reported causes of death. There's your criminal masterminding, Harold. Maybe you're not, you know, not an irredeemable criminal mastermind after all. Well, I mean, you are irredeemable. But, like, in terms of being a criminal mastermind. This malevolent stroke of genius allowed Shipman to sidestep the first investigation into his hefty kill counts. But, as we already know, Old Harold wasn't the most tech-savvy of people. The prosecution explained how each of these amendments had an electronic timestamp added, which showed Shipman altering data from years gone by, just hours after each of his victims died. I take back everything I said, uh, you're an idiot. Like... Every, when you edit a file on any computer, it's always like last modified. I mean, come on, come on. What's more, he also scooped up all of their prescription medications on the way out of the door. It seemed Harold hadn't quite managed to kick that drug habit, which plagued him in his twenties. In the weeks leading up to his murders, he would often prescribe the victims with his favorite drugs, so he'd have a nice post-kill hit just waiting for him. That is disturbing. These paper trails were damning in the highest sense of the word. Like I said before, Shipman was so utterly, unbelievably guilty that not even the best lawyer in the world could have got him acquitted. And he didn't exactly do his defense team any favor with how he came across in court. Harold maintained the same aloof demeanor which had irritated his colleagues and schoolmates throughout his life. Presumably, his lawyer spent much of the trial kicking him under the table and whispering, cry for Christ's sake. Now, I mean, even if he cried, that jury is sending him away. Or that judge is sending him away. I mean, come on. Come on On the other hand, the first witness in his case made a fantastic impression. This was Angela Wooder of Face Attorney, the solicitor and daughter of Shipman's final victim. Her calm, collected account of her quest for the truth won the jury over wholesale. If we ever had to choose a hero of this story, it would probably be her. You'd think it would be the police who tracked him down, but they, they didn't do that great of a job the first time around, did they? As more and more victims' relatives took the stand, some revealed how Shipman had claimed to be calling an ambulance for their loved ones as they passed away, but his phone records proved that he had hung up the calls before they ever connected, leaving the patient to slowly slip away, with their worried family looking on helplessly. Shipman's defense against these piles of evidence was paltry at best. His story kept shifting between sessions of questioning, and when it was obvious that there was no wriggling out of this one, he tried to claim that he was acting on compassionate grounds. But that hardly stands up when you consider the fact that none of his victims had a terminal. Illness, far from it. Take 77 year old Lizzie Adams, for example. She was still working away as a dance teacher, as nimble as ever, when Shipman took that all away from her. Yeah, I mean, dude, you've been caught. There's so much evidence. It's time to be like, yeah, 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 you got me. You're going to prison either way. Why put yourself through the stress? You're going to prison, Harold. With all this information in hand, the jury retired to deliberate for a total of 34 hours, and you can probably guess the conclusion they came to. On January the 31st, 2000, Harold Shipman was convicted on all counts and sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences plus four years for forging the will. The judge decided to combine all of these punishments into one neat package: life without parole, an extremely rare sentence in the UK. Oh, and he lost his medical license, of course. And finally. Yeah, life without parole—you don't hear about that often. Like generally, especially compared to our American friends, getting uh, a life without parole sentence—I mean, it doesn't—you don't really hear of it that much. Even some pretty bad murders—it's you know, twenty years, and then you can be out after. Less if you behave yourself. When the sentence was handed out, Shipman stood in the courtroom, pale and anxiously biting his lip. Aside from having his evil laid bare for all to see, he had to face up to the fact that he had been well and truly defeated. Better people had thoroughly humbled him by unraveling what he thought to be the perfect web of deception. But it wasn't Harris. Your web was very, very shoddy, wasn't it? Judge Forbes's closing remarks tried to express the betrayal felt by all of the victims' families, the people of Hyde, and the whole of the NHS whose reputation shipment had tarnished. He said, "Each victim was your patient. You murdered each and every one by a calculated and cold-blooded perversion of your medical skills." I have little doubt that the victims smiled as they submitted to your deadly mistreatment. The sheer wickedness of what you have done defies description." Afterwards, the doctor was taken off to start his new life in Durham Prison, where he would presumably be barred from helping out in the infirmary. Bloody well, hope so. The judge turned to the weeping crowd in the public gallery and spoke about how emotionally harrowing the whole affair had been. He thanked all of the witnesses who were willing to relive their trauma to secure justice for their loved ones. So Hyde was free of Doctor Death, and its old dears could finally go get treatment for a cold without risking their lives. Everything's all good now, right? Well, not quite, because the true horror was still to come. Indeed. Like, I mentioned at the beginning how he is the most prolific serial killer ever. So far what? He was convicted of killing 15 people? Let's just say there's a reason there's another four pages of Callum's script today. I mentioned that the 15 murder charges which Shimon went down on were mostly based on autopsy results, but we already know that he did his best to convince the families to have his victims cremated, which makes an autopsy around 10,000 times more difficult. Yeah, no kidding. So what kind of body count are we really talking here? 20 people? 50 people? This is the question on everyone's mind for months. The media went crazy for the story, with all sorts of estimates floating around the front pages of newspapers. After the trial concluded, the BBC reported an estimated total of 146 victims. For comparison's sake, your average double-decker bus holds about half that many people. Shipman had potentially filled two entire double-decker buses with victims. But that was essentially just hearsay at this point. Media sensationalism, surely. To get to the bottom of it, two separate inquiries were commissioned. Dame Janet Smith and Professor Richard Baker of the University of Leicester both independently went through all of Shipman's files to identify cases which seemed to match the conditions of his confirmed murders. After pouring through the evidence for months upon months, the inquiries arrived at some truly mind-boggling figures. 236 and 216 victims, respectively, with serious suspicion hanging over a further four dozen or so cases. Now, we're desensitized to these sorts of figures nowadays, so let's take a second to really appreciate the gravity of this number. Around 250 times, this man watched on as someone he was charged to protect slowly died in his hands. 250 times, he went home and slept, having just ended a life. Each murder, an eerie echo of his own mother's dying moments, reenacted over and over through his sick addiction to murder. At the beginning, I mentioned that Harold Shipman was the UK's worst serial killer, but I have to admit, That was a little misleading. Actually, he has the highest number of confirmed victims of any murderer in modern times. Shipman is the world's worst serial killer. Yeah, as I said at the beginning, I thought so. I mean, it's an extraordinary number of people. The extensive list of his victims reads like the closing credits to a movie. Charles Harris, 70. Dorothy Fletcher, 74. Christine Hancock, 53. Lily Higgins, 83. Leah Johnson, 80. And on and on. But one name stands out among the rest. Susie Garfitt, who was under Shipman's care for complications related to her cerebral palsy. In 1972, while working at his very first job as a junior doctor at Pontefract General Infirmary in West Yorkshire, Shipman killed Susie when her mother left her bedside for ten minutes to get a cup of tea. She was four. Cases like this were unearthed for years after the original conviction, and the researchers involved agree that the spree probably started just a few months after Shipman gained his medical license in 1971. But unfortunately the good doctor wouldn't be hanging around to answer for all of these crimes. The man who was so obsessed with taking the power of life and death into his own hands did it one last time on January the 13th, 2004 in his cell at Wakefield Prison where he was relocated to 6 months prior, Shipman took his own life. He hanged himself from the window bars of his cell with a set of bedsheets and so ended the story of Britain's worst murderer and the most prolific serial killer in the world. Now, I'm not someone who believes in hell. <laughs> But boy, sometimes I wish I did believe this is a good example of one of those times. Perhaps knowing the full gargantuan scale of his crimes, he couldn't face the fact that he would continue to face fresh interrogations for the rest of his days. Or maybe he finally felt the long overdue guilt for his almost three decades of menace. I doubt it somehow. This guy, I mean, he's obviously a murderer, but he just, he sounds, he sounds like obviously he's a complete psycho total psycho or maybe he just wasn't a fan of prison i've heard it's not that great some say that his wife primrose suspected foul play was involved in his death but she must have been hard-pressed to find anyone who even slightly gave a damn yeah it'd be like oh no he killed himself let's deeply investigate this really really deeply (laughs) immediately give up the self-appointed Grim Reaper was public enemy number one after all, and he had decimated public trust in the NHS. How the hell could they have let this happen? And how many other doctor killers might be out there? The General Medical Council was on full damage limitation mode, while the Public Inquiry Commission look, took those involved to task for their failings. The next time you mess up at work, just imagine how the rookie police officer, who originally cleared shipment of wrongdoing, must have felt at this point. Yeah, no kidding. That like not doing your job properly back in the day? I mean, you're not responsible for this, but uh, you gotta be feeling pretty damn bad. The GMC brought charges against six other doctors not for murder, but for countersigning so many damn cremation forms for shipment without noticing that this guy really liked burning bodies. They were all cleared of any wrongdoing, but not so for two other doctors from Tameside General Hospital, who somehow failed to address the massive amounts of morphine in the system of one of Shipman's victims in 1994. The Greater Manchester Police Force apologized for their mistake, but defended the detectives assigned to the case as having done the best they could with the information available at the time. I'll leave it up to you to decide whether that's true or not. They did seem a little bit... Negligent, didn't they? Allegedly. As for the health service itself, they made some serious changes in the hope of avoiding a calamity like this happening again. Single doctor GP clinics went out somewhat shunned for their lack of internal oversight, and health authorities started keep- keeping a closer tab on small town doctors and their reported stats, GPs started under-prescribing pain medicine for fear of accidentally prescribing too much and inadvertently inheriting the Dr. Death nickname. There were even extra questions added to the standardized cremation paperwork, thanks to Shipman, which read, ''Do you consider that there should be any further examination of the remains of the person who has died? Do you know or suspect that the death of the person was violent or unnatural?'' Wait. <laughs> Just if you're Just right. If you your Shipman, be like, ''No and absolutely not. Let's burn this body quicko.'' Uh, it's basically asking, oh, by the way, do you reckon the doctor killed them? Ah, oh, okay, never mind. These are for the coroner, of course. Okay. Um, thankfully, the answer is always, almost always no, because Shipman is actually the only doctor in the history of the UK to be convicted for killing his patients. But that's just the thing. He's the only one to be convicted of it. Therein lies the real chilling aspect of this case. Was he the only one? Couldn't it be the case that others have done the exact same thing but refrained from pushing the limits and getting greedy? Just how long could someone like that keep getting away with it all while wearing the smiling mask of your friendly family doctor? The total number of deaths in a case like that might make Shipman's 250 pale in comparison. I'm not sure about that. He killed a lot of people and uh, he got caught for it. If, if there's people killing less, um, then they're less likely to get caught. But I don't know. Who knows? I absolutely hope that that isn't the case my advice don't dwell on it that's the way madness lies yes absolutely and that's uh where we end today's casual criminalist that's where we end the dr shipman part of this episode um and we've just got some what calum has described as dismembered appendices so let's have a gander Number one, if you're left wondering how such a meticulous killer could have been caught through such, a childish, uh, through such childish slapdash forgery, you're not alone. Some suspect that it was left because Shipman actually wanted to get caught as he couldn't stand the anxiety of his downwardly spiraling life of drugs and deceit. Number two, the press weren't the first to give Dr. Shipman the Dr. Death moniker. It was old biddies around town who came up with it. For two years prior to his capture, the elderly ladies of Hyde began referring to Shipman by that gruesome nickname, yet for some reason they kept going to him for treatment. Come on, police! Please do something. Someone's going to hear that you're calling your, de- your doctor Dr. Death. Someone should look into that. One was quoted as saying, "...all the old ladies die with him. They say he's a good doctor, but you won't last." Oh my. Number 3. Despite being present at two of the murder scenes, Shipman's wife Primrose defended his innocence to the last, possibly because she was under his abusive control. Psychologists call the phenomenon fall adieu, where two people are so close that they share a common delusion or warped worldview. His suicide may have been A kind of twisted thanks for her loyalty, as she was still entitled to receive his NHS pension if he died before turning (laughs) sixty. Really, they didn't take that away. Number four. If you find yourself, this is the final one. If you find yourself down in the town of Hyde, you can pop into the Garden of Tranquility to pay your respects to the shipman victims. The memorial opened in 2005 in the town park as a place for some quiet reflection on the darkest episode of the town's history. Yeah, 250 people. It's just, I mean casual Criminalist. we cover killers we cover crimes but we're here at episode two and we've already covered one of the biggest um as always thank you for listening to the casual criminalist if you watched on youtube thank you for doing that leave me a comment if you're on youtube leave me a review if you're listening to this on uh, apple Podcasts, spotify wherever you get your podcasts i would appreciate it and thank you for listening